So Russ spoke last week uh, at our Easter service about this idea of new life, that the resurrection brings new life, and, and the beauty of that and, and the story that follows throughout the scripture pointing to that idea of new life. And so this morning, the question or the prompt that we're going to think about is, how have you experienced new life? How in your individual life, in your group context, in the, in the, in the world that you go to outside of this place, how have you experienced new life in the last week, in the, in the last couple of weeks? We're going to jump in this morning. Uh, so we're out of that Lenten season. Easter kind of culminates the season of Lent. Again, we were all together last week at the Fox and had a great celebration. And we're going to begin in a new journey where we're talking about the kingdom of God. And we're going to look at some parables to describe this idea. And we're still in the book of Matthew. We have been since the beginning of the school year. We'll continue through the book of Matthew as we figure out what is this thing that God talks about when he talks about the kingdom of God. What does that mean? What do we take from that? Today we're going to look at the parable of the sower. How many people know the parable of the sower? Raise your hand. Yeah, this is a, this is a classic parable. One of the, I would say one of the most well-known parables. One that if you did any time in a kid's community environment, you probably learned the parable of the sower. Uh, and we're going to look at it this morning. Here's the temptation uh, that I feel, especially as somebody who gets the opportunity to come up and, and share in, in an environment like this, uh, Anytime I look at a passage that's really well-known, like the parable of the sower, there's this temptation to try to look at it creatively, to try to make some new flashy point, to try to draw some new stuff out of it. I even feel that when I read sometimes, as I go back and read the Gospels over and over, or read parts of the New Testament or Old Testament over and over, and, and I, I, try to, I find myself trying to say, well, what else can I find in here? What, what new discovery can I find? And definitely God does that stuff. And there are times where we creatively look at a passage and, and Jesus speaks new to it. But this morning, the parable of the sower is actually a really pretty straightforward parable. Jesus speaks the parable, teaches the parable. He then takes a moment and he talks about why he speaks in parables. And then he actually explains the entire parable. He gives us the answers <laughs> to the whole thing. So it's a pretty straightforward passage that we're looking at this morning. And my prayer as I prepared this, uh, as I was studying over the, the last week or, or so, was that God wouldn't necessarily give me a creative idea or a new flashy point, that, but that maybe God would just allow me a fresh perspective. That I would just hear things in a new way. Not in a different way, but just in a new way. That I could see this parable in a new way, a fresh, a new time. That's my prayer for us this morning as we read a parable, as we study a parable that many of us know and could, and could recite almost uh, to a degree, that God would just allow us to hear these things new, to challenge us in new ways. So let me pray and then we'll jump in. Lord, we pray that your spirit would illuminate your scriptures this morning. Lord, not that we uh, find new creative things or unique things about the sower, about your parable, about your word, but that we would just hear them new. That our biases, that the things that we bring into the scripture so often could be stripped away that we could just hear your word afresh this morning. Challenge us in it. Lord, allow us to be in a, in a place of meditation, a place of reflection as we hear these words. So be with us, Lord, as we study your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we read this morning... I'm going to ask if somebody would be so bold to actually stand up and read this to the community. Matthew 13, 1 through 9. Somebody with a Bible out there that would say, I'm willing to stand up and, and read this passage. Ben Bunfill is the first person I saw. So Matthew 13, 1 through 9, Ben. 
Great. Thank you, Ben. So Jesus teaches this parable. Then he gives this um, kind of a, a little short vignette or a, another little teaching to specifically his disciples. They ask him, why do you teach in parables? And he explains why. I'm going to skip that part, and I'm going to come to the part where Jesus comes back to the crowd, addresses the crowd, and actually explains this parable he just taught. This is what Jesus says. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. So again, Jesus puts forth this teaching, the parable of the sower, and then in a few moments later, then explains the entire parable to us, to his listeners in this time. Let me back up a little bit and give you some context as to what's happened before in Jesus' life at this point. The book of Matthew starts with these long birth narratives. Jesus then moves into the, his public ministry. And really one of the first things that he does is does this incredible teaching, perhaps his best most well-known teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. We studied the Sermon on the Mount for uh, the, the, almost the entire fall, beginning of the school season all the way up until Advent season. After that Sermon on the Mount, he goes and he does some public healing, some miracles, some Jesus stuff, which is really cool and incredible stuff. He then takes a, a moment or about a chapter to teach his disciples specifically on this idea of mission. And in that time, he actually sends the disciples out. He says, go out, do mission." Bring my word. Bring the gospel. So he sends his disciples out. And once they go out, chapter 12, the chapter that comes right before the chapter we're in this morning, is where we first begin to see in the book of Matthew, Jesus' authority being questioned. This is kind of the first place where some people are beginning to arise in the scriptures that begin to question Jesus. He's questioned on the Sabbath. He then rebukes the Pharisees. The people that are around him, they begin to desire signs and wonders. We've heard about this Jesus guy, but we're not totally sure if we believe in him. Let's, let's ask for some signs, for some, some more miracles. So Jesus, kind of in this time, coming off the first time where he really sees opposition, people begin to question him. And in chapter 13, he begins this teaching on the kingdom. This is where we begin to see some parables that relate to the kingdom. And this is the first one, but six follow directly after this. Six different parables that begin to get at this idea of what is this kingdom of God thing that Jesus is talking about. 
this being the first parable that gets at that. And so Jesus comes out of the house and he goes to the shore and people begin to amass around him, so much so that he, he gets himself into a boat and pushes off a little bit into the water so that he has some room. And he begins to teach this parable of the sower, where a man goes out, we'll just say a man, maybe it was a woman, but I think contextually we can assume that it was a man, goes out and begins to sow seed in a field. And Jesus really gives four options of where the seed falls. He says, some falls among the road. The seed is therefore unable to germinate. Birds quickly come upon it and devour the seed. Jesus says, this is the person who hears the word of the kingdom but does not understand. Some of the seed falls among the rocky places. And just as fast as the seed is able to establish some sort of root or it sprouts just as fast as it it sprouts, it withers and dies due to an unhealthy root system. It can't establish enough roots to support itself. This person being the one that hears and accepts the word at some level, but is unable to establish that root system to support itself. He says, other of the seed falls among the thorns. The seed is able to grow, but the growth is amongst the thorns, and soon enough it's choked out by those thorns. Over time, it dies. Again, there's a hearer and an acceptor of the word in this soil. But the bondage and the worries of wealth, Jesus says the deceitfulness of wealth, become the ultimate demise of the seed's growth. And then the fourth soil, the good soil, the fertile soil, The seed finds itself in the right soil in this instance, and therefore it grows and produces exponentially. This being the word and the reality of the kingdom settling deep into somebody, working towards total formation. When I read a parable, when I read scripture, one of the things that helps me is I think about, well, in this first pass, as I read this quickly, what are some things that kind of stick out to me? Is there a word? Is there an idea? Is there a concept that kind of sticks out or, or um, is rattling around in my brain a little bit? And when I did this, the first, my first pass, the thing that stuck out to me is this. Why is this called the parable of the sower? I mean, it seems like actually so much of the material is actually about the soils. The four different soils there. I mean, the sower is definitely a character, but the majority of what Jesus teaches is actually about the soil that represents different People. Many actually have contended to say, well, what if we change this to be the parable of the soils? Maybe that would have been a better name. But Jesus identifies this as the parable of the sower in verse 18. So there's got to be something to it, right? But that was my first pass. Here's what I think. I think it's called the parable of the sower because the sower is the main character. He is the source of the kingdom word. He is the one that initiates the movement of the kingdom. He is the one that initiates the spread of the kingdom. He is the one that makes our membership in the kingdom even possible. So it's not just about these four different soil types. It's about the sower. It's about the king that makes this all possible. The parable is about the kingdom of God taking root in the lives of people through the power and the work of the king. So I think we have to maintain this idea that the sower is a critically important character in this parable. When we too quickly jump to this idea of soils, when we too quickly put ourselves into this parable, I think we miss that a little bit. I think we miss the power and the truth behind this character of the sower. Now, we don't know much about the sower. It doesn't really say much about him, but here's what we do know. His methods are incredibly haphazard. 
It doesn't seem like he's all that effective or efficient in the way that he sows seed, honestly. Now, I don't know if you can tell by looking at me, but I don't come from an agrarian background. I literally know nothing about farming. There are inevitably people sitting here this morning that grew up on farms or are currently farmers. I know honestly nothing. However, I think I do know enough to know that sowing seed this way doesn't seem that effective to me. Seed at some level probably had to be uh, somewhat of a scarce commodity, or, or at least you had to steward your use of seed at some level. So just to go around and throw it all over the place doesn't make much sense to me. Some fell on the road, and I would think as a sower, you wouldn't put seed on the road knowing that it's probably not going to take root there. You wouldn't throw it necessarily in the rocky places knowing that the soil there probably isn't great soil. If you just do the quick math on this, only a quarter of the seed sown actually comes to produce fruit. Only a quarter of the seed sown lands on good soil. So I think we can read this in one of two ways. I think the first can be this. You read this and you get done and you say, is that the best that the sower can do? Is that really the, the most efficient, effective way to sow seed? Does really that much seed need to go to waste? Or you can read it by saying, that sower is incredibly generous and gracious with the way that he sows seed. He doesn't want any type of soil to miss the potential opportunity to come to fruition, to grow fruit. You can read it seeing the power of the seed that does take root to produce well over what it should, a hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. When we read it that way, I wonder if we can maybe even extrapolate a little bit more because it almost seems that the sower knows no other way. Although it seems haphazard, but the sower knows no other way just to spread graciously, to spread generously, to cast wide his seed. I think this is a beautiful picture of Jesus in the way that he gives grace. A beautiful picture of Jesus in the way that he loves all people. Even the people that don't produce fruit, even the people that don't even accept him as Lord and Savior, he continues to be gracious with. He continues to be loving. His love and his grace are generously sown, graciously sown. The word, power, and evidence and movement of the kingdom is all around us. It's in this place. It's in our lives. It's hard to miss. It's beyond these walls. It's out in the world. We have times where missionaries come up and stand here or, or different people that come in and speak to our community and, and show us, help us to see the way that the gospel, that the kingdom is spreading outside. That's God's doing. The kingdom word being graciously sown. So as I read this, one of the first points that came to mind for me, one of the first things I gathered from this passage was this, that the kingdom word, the gospel, is sown generously. It's given to all people, even those who won't recognize it as such. Even those who will deny it. And although this doesn't seem efficient for our 21st century mind frame, where we think about maximizing production, minimizing loss, it is the way of the kingdom. It is the way of the sower. To give graciously, to give generously. The power of the kingdom is to take a single seed and produce an entire crop. 
The power of the kingdom is to take a few seeds and produce an entire orchard. It's pretty cool to think about it in that way. Cool to think about the sower in that way. In the same way, the sower will gather his entire crop from a few seeds that landed on good soil. The sower and his methods seem a little crazy, maybe even a little inefficient, but that is the sower's job, and he knows no other way than to give graciously, to give generously. So that was my first pass. I think maybe if we took even just one truth from this scripture, we could take that, and it could help us as we journey closer to the Lord. But there are some application points in this scripture as well. We've got to get to this point of the four soils. What does that mean for us? Now, here's the danger. I think there's an inherent danger in reading this parable is that this is one of those parables that's incredibly easy to read onto other people. To read this and immediately begin to think about, well, who in my life represents the rocky places? Which one of my friends is being uh, choked out by thorns in their life? Which one of my friends does the, the seed never even take root? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've used this passage alone to speak in the context of youth ministry, to try to help high school students figure out, well, what is the soil of your life? I don't think that's necessarily wrong, but I think that this parable demands that we honestly and transparently read ourselves into it too. To honestly and transparently think about, well, what soil does my life represent right now? You see, I think it's an interesting point, and, and, and it's easy to miss this over when we first read it, but that all the people, all the, the soils represented in this passage hear the kingdom word. Three of them actually accept the kingdom word. So this is for us. It's not just to push on to other people, but this is a parable for us to hear, to learn, to be transparent as we question, as we evaluate. So, again, there are four options, four different soil options. The first, the hearer of the word is the one who does not understand it. The seed falls in their lives, but the ground is hardened and traveled upon, so much so that the seed can never take root. This person hears the kingdom words, but never truly listens. They never get the meaning. They never understand it. And so the truth of the kingdom is never understood, and so it's taken away by the evil one. The birds come and take it away. The evil one comes and takes it. The second is the hearer who joyfully responds, accepts the word of the kingdom. But because of the lack of depth of soil in their lives, the affliction, the persecution of being a Christ follower eventually scorches that seed. The hard stuff of being a Christian, of being someone who gives their life to Jesus Christ, eventually scorches that seed because there is no root structure. I think some of us live in this world. You oscillate between the emotional highs of a certain service, you feel close to the Lord, but then distance grows and you feel separated, you feel distanced from the God. This again speaks right into youth ministry. How many times did I take a group of students to camp where they all professed faith in Jesus Christ, all on the bus home, talked about how they were going to impact the kingdom, how they were going to advance the kingdom, how they love Jesus. But when you get back into your life, they go back into their broken homes and, and all of the stuff there, 
that that distance begins to grow because there wasn't enough soil for root structure. I think people that find themselves in this oftentimes find themselves in seasons of closeness, but then seasons of great distance. They're re-inspired by a Christian conference or a, a real good worship set at church, but then slowly distance begins to grow. And there's seasons where they don't even feel close to God. They don't even know if they actually believe anymore. People in this cycle, I think, oftentimes question why God seems so distant, but really maybe what they should question is, what is it about my soil? Why do I lack depth in my soil enough that roots can actually take hold? Maybe these people begin or need to begin to evaluate the soil and not so much question God. The third here accepts the kingdom word, begins to root, but slowly is overtaken by the worry and deceitfulness of wealth. You see, the soil is deep enough. There's enough water. Photosynthesis is taking place. All the elements are coming together. There's actual growth. Roots are established. But soon, the trappings of the world, the stresses, the worries, all those things begin to choke its growth. A slow death begins to emerge. What I think is scary about this type of soil is that I think people can often think they're okay, but they're not. People read this or, or sense that their life is okay, but they're just living a slow death. Their faith is slowly being stripped away by the things that they allow to come into their life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the stresses, the worries, again, all the things that the scripture identifies. This, I believe, is where the majority of Christians find themselves. In their commentary on Matthew, Davies and Allen says this, It is possible to be a Christian, in quotes, for some time and yet not be one at all in the end or in reality. It is possible to be a Christian for some time and yet not be one at all in the end or in reality. How many of us are living this type of faith? The faith that is slowly being choked out by the things of the world. I would guess many of us don't even know. But that slow erosion is taking place. That slow death is taking place. This is what I believe happens when our friend or that pastor at the church back home or, or whatever the situation is wakes up one morning next to the woman who's not his wife. And it started with a conversation, which led to kind of, you know, some flirtatious action, which then led to the pursuing of another person, which then led to an incredibly poor decision that will forever alter that person's life. Slowly the thorns of the world begin to overtake. Slowly the gospel begins to die in these people's lives. Now again, it's easy, just as I did, to point that outward. To say, well, that happened to my friend over there, or I, I know of a pastor at that church over there that that happened to, but where is this in our life? Where are we slowly being choked out? Where is the gospel dying a slow death in our life? What are those worries, what are those stresses that are causing that to happen? 
could it perhaps be the deceitfulness of wealth? And I think this is interesting, and this is just uh, this is free of charge for you guys here. Interesting that Jesus does not say the potential deceitfulness of wealth, but he says the deceitfulness of wealth. He doesn't qualify it. He just says, listen, there's deceitfulness in wealth, and that could be one of the things that chokes its growth. Is that what's making the gospel not bloom in your life? The fourth here accepts and understands the word and begins to fruit through the power of the kingdom word that's planted in their life. This, to me, is the process of sanctification, the actual becoming like Jesus. It's the taking on of his very character. This is the type of soil we want to be. This is what we're striving for. A soil where roots can go deep, where that kingdom word can live, where the gospel can be expressed, where sanctification begins to happen and fruit ultimately is produced from that. Now, as we read this, I think we have to be honest and say, which soil am I? What do I represent in this passage? The parable seems pretty clear that there's really only one way we want to be. That a few hear and accept and understand the word, but really only one of these soils leads to fruit. Only the fertile soil leads to fruit. Think about it this way. If you have a birthday in January, February, or March, raise your hand. Okay? So that should be roughly a quarter of us. Raise it, keep your hands raised if you wouldn't mind. Might be a little bit low for this service, but that should be essentially one quarter of us. The scripture seems to be saying that only a quarter of us really have that fertile soil. We all may be sitting in this room together. Many of us may think we're fertile soil, but only a quarter of us are. It's pretty staggering to think about it in that way. To look around and say, man, maybe we all gathered here thinking we were okay, but, but the scripture seems kind of clear. Only a quarter of that seed lands in that fertile soil, comes to produce fruit. So what's the outcome for the rest of us? What happens if our lives are represented by the first three soils? Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 7. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I think there are more of these passages in the scripture than we like to admit. Passages where people think they are okay, but Jesus has a different story for them. Only a quarter of the seed lands on that fertile soil. So, I think the thing we have to take from this is that fruit is the only indicator of fertile soil. It's the only way that we know. That is what Jesus is after. Fruit in our lives, this process of sanctification. I don't think that we can assume just because we sit in this building this morning, just because we help out in kids' community, just because we tithe, 
just because we go on mission trips or we've lived in Africa for a number of years bringing the gospel to a lost tribal people, I don't think we can assume that we are fertile soil. Now, all of those things may be fruit. They very possibly could be fruit. But I would also contend you could do all of those things and have no kingdom transformation in your life. You could be engaged in all of those things and the process of sanctification actually isn't happening. You could do all those things and no fruit could actually come from that. So it leaves us in this tension point. Those things aren't bad. Don't hear me say that this morning. But we have to evaluate honestly what is the fruit of our lives because just being here isn't enough. We have to begin to evaluate ourselves. Again, if we do just that simple math, four heard the gospel message. Three actually accepted the gospel message, but only one produced fruit. Only one of the hearers, only one of the acceptors actually moved to that process of sanctification, to that process of producing fruit. This, to me, I think this parable speaks to the idea of the difference between conversion and sanctification. Those are two very, very different things. The second and third soil both seemed to be converted. They heard and accepted the word, but only the fourth actually avails itself to the process of sanctification, the process where they end up producing fruit. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16 says this, Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but be like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. That is the process of sanctification. To chase after the holiness of Jesus Christ. To take on His very character. To take on His very image in all things that we do. And I believe this is the goal that Jesus had in mind as he taught this parable. It's not just about hearing and accepting the word, it's about availing yourself as fertile soil to the process of sanctification, the process of being fruit producers. Oswald Chambers says this We take the term sanctification much too lightly. Are we prepared for what sanctification will cost? It will cost an intense narrowing of all of our interests on earth and an immense broadening of all of our interests in God. Sanctification means intense concentration on God's point of view. It means every power of body, soul, and spirit chained and kept for God's purposes only. Are we prepared for God to do in us all that he has separated us for? Sanctification means being made one with Jesus so that the disposition that ruled him will rule us. Are we prepared for what that will cost? It will cost everything that is not of God in us. That's a powerful word this morning. I think in the same way that we take this term sanctification too lightly, as Oswald Chambers talks about, I think we take this parable too lightly. Again, we pass it off on other people assuming we're the fertile soil but I think we have to wrestle with that. We have to wrestle with this idea of, am I truly fertile soil? Is there fruit in my life? 
Now, there's tension in this because we are not the judge. Jesus Christ is the judge. And so that fruit, that lasting fruit, it's not for me to point out in you. It's not for you to point out in somebody else. It's for us to be faithful to the word and say, I am going to continue to try to be holy as Jesus is holy, praying that there is fruit in my life, and time will tell. Time will tell. So this morning, I think we need to sit with this. I think we need to evaluate, that we need to be transparent as we think about our own lives. What is the soil that I represent? Where is the fruit in my life? Am I ready and willing for the process of sanctification if I'm not already on that journey? We're going to take communion. The band's going to come back up. But before you go, partake of the cup and of the bread. Ask yourself those questions. What soil am I? Am I being sanctified? Am I becoming holy as Jesus is holy? Is there fruit in my life? And if there's not, and you want to move towards that, take communion this morning as a way to celebrate the fact that God allows us to do that. Celebrate the fact that Jesus desires that of us in memory of his sacrifice so that we could even partake in it. Take communion in that way. Or if you have this stuff nailed, if you're on the journey, if you're experiencing this process of sanctification, if you are fertile soil, if there is fruit, abundant fruit in your life, then take the cup and the bread today in celebration of the way that the kingdom has worked through you. Again, remembering that Jesus sacrificed so that that work could be done, so that you could be used to advance his kingdom. Let's pray this morning and then we'll enter into a time of communion and worship.